I'm Jason Barnwell. I work on legal business operations and strategy for Microsoft. Today, I am chatting with Isabella Fu, the former head of IP litigation at Microsoft, who has recently taken on a new role where she's doing strategic advising and policy work for Microsoft's intellectual property group. Thank you for making the time to chat today, Isabella. Oh, you're most welcome, Jason. And let me add also that my new strategic role, I actually am working part-time. So uh, that's that's a new challenge as well, and I just want to make a plug for that. Well, okay. Well, let's let's plan to get into that. Okay. But uh, there's, a, there's a couple things I want to set up before we, we really get into it. So you are one of the most interesting people to talk to in our department. You're one of the smartest and most clever people. Um, I always learn something when I talk to you. It is it is just a delight that I look forward to. And the other thing that I, I think a lot of people don't know is that you are hilarious. And that you, so you can't see it, but uh, Isabella is uh, shaking her head slightly. Uh, yeah. But I have a feeling that will come out in the conversation today. So okay. Well, Jason, it's always a pleasure to talk to you as well. I mean, I believe me, I learned something. I've this. If anyone hasn't seen it, you should see this get up in Jason's office that he put together. It's very impressive. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite a nerd. So let's start going back a bit. Um, so you're definitely an intellectual property expert. You are renowned by uh, your, your peers in the field. But I want to go back and get a little bit of a sense of where things started for you. So you started as a physics major, as a, an undergraduate, right? That is correct. I did. Why did you choose physics? What, what drew you to that? Um, well, it's... It's kind of embarrassing, but it actually has, at least at my college, one of the fewest number of required courses that one <laughs> needs to take in order to graduate. Um, and I, so then I was able to use a lot of my extra credit hours to study things like economics and psychology and basically just do a lot of just random things, which I think, um, has, you know, it's given me insight to a lot of things in a much more you know, deep way than I think if I had just maybe studied engineering and loaded up my course load with all the required courses. Okay, so one, you're optimizing, and two, you're a polymath. So you were you draw things from many different disciplines to to inform what you do and how you do things. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say so, and I would also say it doesn't necessarily. I mean, anybody can do that. Um, I think some people have a natural tendency to do that and other people like to focus on one thing. And so I think being a litigator, it benefits one to um, be able to see things from other people's perspectives. So, the, yes. But the other thing that I think is implicit in what you're offering there is I think you have a very broad curiosity about things and it takes you in different directions. And I think we see that in some of the solutions you create and the, the questions you ask. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. So there's one other aspect I wanted to poke on. Um, so having watched you operate, one of the things I observe is that you have a mind that really lends itself towards systems level thinking. Uh, you can drill into detail very much so, but you also seem to examine where things operate on the boundaries, uh, keep an eye on the big picture. And I'm, I've always just been curious if your, your background in physics and some of the other things you learned, if, if that informed it, or is that an intrinsic trait that you think you just always have? Well, I guess... You don't have to be careful about the way I answer because we're all supposed to be about growth mindset and we don't have, you know, we're not born with the way that we think. Um, that said, I think that some people have more comfort with some things than other people do. I actually, 
I think most of what drives what I do is, you know, need to make a decision about mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I have always had comfort with that. Um, you know, when I was, and, and maybe it results from, you know, my mother being an incredibly indecisive person and somebody needing to run the household as a kid. Um, but once you realize that you have to make a decision and you're accountable for something, then you have to get comfort with that um, decision. And so you have to find ways to efficiently get information and make a decision, even if you might not have complete information, but getting comfort with making a decision, even if you have, say, you know, 70% information and also having comfort with sort of in a growth mindset way, although I never characterized it as this until we, I read that book. Um, also having comfort with making a mistake, recognizing a certain percentage of your decision is going to be wrong. But then also understanding that if your decision is wrong, what is your path to correct that? And so I think once you start to internalize um, that you can make a decision without full information and as long as you have the ability to course correct and think about what's the worst outcome, like if you make the wrong decision, it starts to give you comfort about making decisions because you can, at least in this business, almost always correct something later. Um, That's not always the case, but in a lot of the situations it is. And for the ones that aren't, well then, that's where you do a graph where the consequences of making the wrong decision are actually impactful as opposed to just, you know, bad, but maybe not that impactful. So let's unpack a couple of things there because I I think you've given us some, some real wisdom. So one, it sounds like your decision framework implicitly has some recognition of there are some doors you walk through and you can't walk back out, and there are some doors that you walk through and you, you can actually change your mind. Right. And so I think that's one issue where a lot of attorneys don't often internalize that. And I think that that framework is really helpful for saying like, hey, so backing up a little bit, mm-hmm. you are quite exquisite at making decisions. And one of the things I've observed is you're good at analyzing the issues. You're good at coming up with a recommendation. You're good at framing the recommendation as something that people can act on very quickly. But part of what I think I observe is you also are very good at helping people understand this is a one-way ratchet or it's not. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts as to why attorneys seem to get stuck because it seems like so often they get in the mode where they presume like I can't actually back up if if we move forward. Do you have any? I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think maybe part of it is, um, you know, I've had a fair amount of experience at this company and other companies just by the nature of the work I do of, you know, having products redesigned and, you know, it's never happy a thing for the, the engineers to have to redesign something. But what I found, you know, in, in multiple situations of doing this is that the sort of, a lot of the people doing the work, they don't want to change their design, which is human nature. Of course, they don't want to do that. Um, but... If somebody at a higher level says, oh, you know, we have to change this because this bad thing happened, then, you know, they actually get behind it and they do that. And part of it is just them wanting to make sure they're doing what the company thinks that they ought to be doing. And if somebody at a higher level says that, then they'll often do it. Um, And so I think... Once you've seen that happen a bunch of times, then you you do begin to have comfort that, yeah, actually we could change things. And so I think what it is is just a lot of people don't realize we can do that. Um, So, you know, if we're doing a a clearance project for, you know, might be a trademark or a copyright or a patent, you know, you just have to think, like, how changeable is this thing? And I think the more we can get the business to think about changing things and building things in a way that are, you know, modular or whatever, I don't know the right word from an engineering perspective, but um, 
you know, the more that you can make things changeable, the more flexibility we have as a business, not just for legal issues, but for, you know, for to change things for, you know, customer reasons, for example. Um, and so we do have a culture, I think, in general of not just we at Microsoft, but in general, people have a culture of not wanting to change things. And I think the more you can embrace, like, wanting to be flexible, the better off we are as a company, again, not just for legal issues, but all kinds of issues. Right. So you're basically describing plan for an agility model, where right. you will have modularity, you'll have separation of concerns, you have things that are basically componentized wherever possible so that you can adapt quickly. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So and I would say, you know, I mean, just as an aside, like I would say, you know, this is not just a problem that Microsoft, I happened to be at a wedding recently, and this guy who works at Facebook was talking to me. And, um, you know, I mentioned one of our old colleagues who happens to work there. And so we were talking about, you know, her. And she's a great lawyer. Um, but, you know, he was talking to me about all the difficulties, you know, Facebook has had um, with respect to sort of going back and figuring out, like, how things got to the way they are. And, you know, when you build things fast and furiously, I think a lot of engineers, like, they just want to put them together. Makes sense. That's efficient. You put things together as fast as you can. But if you don't have in mind, you know, the the thinking that you're going to need to change something or you're going to need to track something, it makes it very hard to undo it at, at the back end. And so, so this engineer was explaining this problem to me at Facebook and he said, well, I don't understand like why we didn't build things, you know, why we didn't foresee some of these problems to begin with and sort of build in, um, you know, escape mechanisms. I said, yeah, that's, I mean, I can tell you why, because, you know, things were in a rush. But I do think that the more these um, companies, you know, have to do this kind of thing, the more you'll see that sort of agility. I, I, yes. And I, yeah. so one of the things that you're highlighting there that I think is true is a lot of the things that we've learned here were basically because things were broken. And right. ideally, what, so there will always be broken things, and that's just a truism right. of life. Right. But the, the, the thing to avoid is compounding that by just doing it the same broken way again, rather than taking the learning opportunity to say, hmm, let's assume that something like this may happen again in the future. How might we design our approach so that it's not so costly to, to do this again? Right, right. I mean, I guess if there's one thing I could, everyone should take away from this talk, it's that, you know, just thinking ahead in terms of flexibility and making it you know, part of our culture, not just from a legal department, but, you know, I don't have a direct touch with most of the engineering groups, but if we could infuse that into the engineering group culture, you know, all the way down, you know, I think the product would be built, there'd be easier to maintain, there's all kinds of benefits result um, from, you know, thinking ahead in terms of that kind of stuff. And of course you don't, you know, there's a balance, you don't want to get bogged down by it, but we are a big enough company with enough, you know, experts here that we can afford to do that in a way that a lot of startups, you know, can't. So, I mean, you just recognize that that's a strength. And then the long term, a little bit more planning ahead of time will, you know, pay off. I mean, it's just the same thing you tell your child, right? You're building, you're building a birdhouse or I don't know, whatever project they're building. It's like, if you think a little bit in, in advance, right, you're going to be better than if you just start putting blocks together. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> that is good wisdom. So the other thing that you mentioned that I want to circle back on is really, let's call it uh, thinking in probabilities. So one of the things that I think you're very good is, let's just call it discount-based decision-making in as much as there's a range of outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we there's a certain amount of science and a certain amount of art to it, but there's X percent chance that this will happen, X percent chance that will happen. And one of the things I've observed is that 
you're really good at not succumbing to loss aversion bias. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about how you do that, how you how you make decisions that have some clarity and some rigor around, you know, using discounts and basically magnitude of either benefit or harm, and then yeah. actually going forward. Um, again, I. I read this article a while ago. I don't remember where it is, but it was some synopsis because I never read the full articles. But it was a synopsis of a Harvard Business Review article that said, you know, rather than doing sort of postmortems after the fact as to what went wrong, you know, one thing you can do is sort of a premortem think about, you know, if this thing went wrong, like how bad would it be? And again, I think if you really think about it, a lot of time, you know, bad situation isn't that bad, or maybe it is bad, um, but. If you knew what the worst situation was in advance, then you could maybe build in some escape hatches beforehand. And so I think that's a just getting that skill and thinking that through. Um, it can give you a lot of comfort about making a decision because you know you can back out of it. And once you once you figure that out, or 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 you build in some decision points that okay, if this isn't going this way, you know I'm going to reevaluate at this specific time and and you know be able to, to course correct at that time. Um, so it is just thinking about. Where are your escape routes? Mm-hmm. I think anytime you have that, I think it, you know every decision it, you can get more comfort um, around it. So again, so think about the absolutely the worst, worst case. And again, sometimes it is a really bad case, but most of the time it's not really that bad. Um, and so and so then you don't, you realize you don't have that spend that much time on it. Um, I don't know if that really answered your question, but I do think there is there is an element of of just orders of magnitude. Um, and I think in general, like our education system hasn't, at least when I was a child, done a great job at teaching people sort of to think about like, is the answer to this math problem reasonable? Um, where is this in you know the grand scheme of things? And it's easy to magnify one little complaint or one little problem you have into a huge problem. But the fact is, you know, I, I recall one situation when we sort of changed the product, and you know, Steven Snofsky was sitting here, and he backed me up on it, and he said, "Yeah, we should change product, right?" You know, a few people complain, but not a big deal. Um, and you know, he was right. Like, I think it was like three big customers complained, and not a lot of little ones, but three big customers. And so, after that, a lot of people criticized Steven for that decision, or whatever. And he was like, three, "Come on!" He's like, "Do you know how many? You know, you're complaining about this because we did this because of legal issue. And you're not happy that three big customers complain, but." Every time we do something else, we get way more than three big customers. So this is this is not really a problem, and and that actually taught me a lot that oh, like we should think about like what percentage of people are going to complain and what percentage is not okay because you're going to get some complaints no matter what you do, and so again, like thinking about it in terms of orders of magnitude can be really helpful. And one thing that I do you know sort of like about today's education system, even though there's a lot of problems with it, at least at my son's school, and I see this you know, with a lot of kids is that I think teachers are trying to teach kids to think about, to, to estimate instead of just following the algorithm of how do you do a multiplication problem or how do you do division problem. But you look at it later and you say, you know, is that a reasonable number? And they're also trying to teach them how to estimate without actually going through the entire calculation. And I think that that mindset is really good for people in general. And I will say, I notice a lot of kids resist it. And so Kids want to be really certain. Adults want to be really certain. But the ability to estimate is, you know, it's a learned skill. And it's one that, you know, I think people have to get comfortable with in order to move quickly. Okay. So I I think you just nailed it with that. And so one of the things I observe is that a lot of the people in our profession, 
they love clarity. Yes. And that's not where we live. Like we actually make money in the gray. Ambiguity right. is, is why we have jobs. Yes. And so what happens is I see them get stuck because they will grind to try to find precision right. that you will never find. And so rather than just taking an order of magnitude approach that's mm -hmm. based on some wisdom and probably some estimation, they just spin and they cycle. And so they never actually make a decision. And so right. it's... I think I now have a, a better view on why you make good decisions quickly mm -hmm. because you have a framework that lets you understand, okay, one, is it a one-way ratchet or will it swing both ways? Two, what is basically the, the what are all the paths that are available to me? So I can uh, understand my optimization route, but I also mm -hmm. understand my fallbacks. But three, you're also overlaying, let's just call it gross order of magnitude, thinking about if things do go wrong, like how much do we really care? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that as a general approach explains a lot of why you can handle a lot of high impact issues and you have also managed to do what I would regard as high volume of high impact issues and successfully move those through over time because I think what you're describing is a very repeatable process. I mean, I hope it is. You know, I hope it is. I mean, I and I think, you know, what Brad was saying, this is something I always learned from him, is there are, again, we're going to make mistakes. And I've, you know, I've lost a lot of money for this company and I'm still here. Um, I like to say I've not been fired. Um, and, you know, some of those mistakes have been really, really visible and, and costly, but not necessarily costly in a material sense, I guess. Um, but the things that you can't really change are reputational mm -hmm. damage. And so, again... There are certainly areas for this company where there are there is risk of reputational damage and significant reputational damage, but a lot of it, a lot of what we do, not so much. And so, again, think about that um, and how public something is going to be versus not. So I find it interesting that you're, you know, like I've lost the company a lot of money. And one thing I would offer you is I'm certain you've made the company a lot of money because we've made faster decisions. And so we always get measured. And so this is where I think uh, mm -hmm. attorneys, we have a tough uh, tough gig because you our losses, when we get stuff wrong, it's so apparent because there's usually, there's often a number attached or there's right. something else. But what people don't see is, wow, Isabella accelerated a whole bunch of things that we sold that were probably several, probably orders of magnitude more than what was lost by smart, crisp decision making. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've also won a bunch of cases and saved a bunch of <laughs> Nobody go. remembers any of the wins and nobody remembers that, you know, we paid less than like a bunch of other companies for some of these issues. But, um, but that, you know, that just goes with the territory. Your losses are always magnified and wins really just aren't. And that's, yeah, that's okay. That's the nature of being a litigator. Like, it is what it is. It is. Congratulations. You've completely uh, upended the, the order of my questions, which I was oh. I was absolutely expecting. This is delightful. Oh. Um, okay. So can we, let's jump back into, so we started off, uh, you know, talking about your, your physics undergrad. Um, how, what what pushed you to go to law school? What, what was the decision process? Well, again, that was, you know, I never have a grand plan. So this is something, I mean, I, I meet all these kids today and they're like, oh, I've got this plan. I'm going to do this for these many years. I'm going to do this for many like what should I do to situate myself best for a career and blah 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 I'm like I don't know because I just kind of like did what I felt like doing in the moment um, so I you know I graduated from college in 1988 you might all remember that there was some big whatever stock market crash in 1987 and you know all these people you know 
undergrads I knew, they all thought they were going to get jobs at Goldman Sachs or whatever. And then all of a sudden there were no jobs like to do that kind of thing. And so I think, you know, law school applications went up some enormous percent, like the, the you know, the, the year that I applied. And so just me being a sheep and not thinking about anything else to do, I was like, oh, this seems easy. Apply to law school. And I also... Um, you know, maybe this isn't so unusual today, but back when I went to law school, I was, you know, Asian kid of immigrants who are engineers. Like, this was sort of unheard of and just, like, very disconcerting um, to my mother because we didn't know any lawyers. Um, so, you know, although it might seem a little bit sheep-like to have done that, and certainly it was, um, you know, among my college classmates, it was a little disconcerting to my parents. But, you know, I always just sort of had a sense that I, I even though I was a very quiet child, I rarely spoke, um, I had a sense of right and wrong, and I had a sense of how to follow rules. And I actually thought I was going to be like a tax lawyer, because uh, I thought that seemed very interesting, and just like, oh, you can manipulate all these different things. And I was partially interested in tax law because I took this economics class about tax policy. Um, and so, I don't know, I just thought it was interesting, and I figured, oh, you know, you know, people always need tax lawyers. So that's why I went to law school, but it, you know, I didn't end up being a tax lawyer. So. So, so what pulled you into the intellectual property realm? Uh, that also was for luck. I mean, it turns out I, you know, I'd majored in physics as an undergrad and I knew how to program, which, you know, when the law firm partners find this out, they're like, oh, we don't have any people who can do that. Like, can you look for this? And I actually got, you know, much more, you know, sort of higher level work, you know, as a result of being able to, you know, talk to the clients and, you know, write a deposition outline on technical issues and um, just analyze things. And so, you know, because it kind of got me out of a lot of scut work, I mean, you know, just as a litigator, it's kind of incredible. I've never done a document production ever. Um, so, you know, um, other people have done them for me, but I've never actually had to get my hands dirty with that. Um, you know, once I figured out that, oh, this enabled me to do more interesting work, then, you know, I just gladly took it. Um, so I guess now that I think back at it, there's sort of a theme of, uh, you know, me just doing sort of the expedient thing, but, you know, it worked out. Uh, you know, optimization, differentiation. Right. <laughs> yeah, no. It, it's, like the best laid plans, yeah. like you can plan all you want, but, you know, like, you know, economics change, you know, and businesses change and you just got to roll with it. Well, so this is a common theme that I think is coming out of this discussion as much as, you know, you, you have some decisions in front of you. You They're probably reversible. So, you know, explore, see how it goes. And if you don't like what you see, like try, go back and try a different door. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, though, I mean, you know, I don't like if I think today, I mean, kids are much more entrepreneurial today than they were when I was a kid. And, you know, so I think of my path, it's like pretty safe and, you know, really not rocking the boat at all as opposed to what people are doing today. So, you know, it's all relative. That's fair. That's fair. So I, th I think you started off at Wilson Cincini. I did. No, no, no. I started off at Oric. Oh, sorry. That lasts about like nine months. Okay. And then I moved down to Wilson Cincini. Okay. Then you went to Wilson Cincini. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, and then eventually you moved to Intel. Right. How did that happen? Um... Well, one of the partners that I worked for at Wilson Sonsini became head of litigation at Intel, and um, about a year after he went there, I, you know, had lunch with him, and I was enjoyed working for him, and um, he, you know, wanted to sort of beef up their litigation department, so I joined, and it seemed, you know, pretty easy to do at the time. Um, you know, back then, a lot of the associates, they weren't so consumed up 
necessarily about making a partner. They were all consumed with getting a job at some company that was going to go public. Um, Intel was already a public company, and so people were like, what are you doing that for? Like, like you're not going to make a lot of money. And, uh, you know, whatever, it ended up okay. It's like big companies like this one, stock can still go up. Uh, so... I just, I again, I sort of saw moving in-house as a way to, for lack of a better term, avoid more scut work. Um, <laughs> like, in terms of, like, staying up all night to, like, get the filing done, um, and instead being able to sort of direct, you know, the strategy of cases. Um, that, that, it works out for some people, and it doesn't work for other people. Some people move in house and they're uncomfortable with decision making. Other people are very comfortable with decision making. So they're very different skills in terms of, you know, what you do as a litigator in house versus outside. Let's let's talk about that. So what how is the role different when you're uh, outside counsel and, and basically the scope of your decision making versus when you're in house counsel? So a lot of outside counsel and certainly not the best outside counsel, but a lot of outside counsel view their job as um, you know, analyzing the risk for you and not necessarily making a strong recommendation, but, you know, giving you enough information to make a decision. And they also view their job, a lot of litigators view their job as winning the case, um, just winning the case. That's not your job as a an in-house litigator. I mean, your job is, of course, to analyze risk and to win should we need to take the case to trial, but your job is to basically resolve the issue as in the most favorable way to the company as possible. And so sometimes that is taking case to trial. Sometimes it is, you know, winning a critical motion that sets things up for settlement. Sometimes, you know, it's maybe it's winning a particular issue again before you get to trial, but it's generally, you know, doing it in the most efficient way possible. Um, But also recognizing when you're not going to win. And then at that point, like figuring out what your best alternative is out. Um, I, you know, again, the best outside counsel also do that, but a lot of them don't view it as their job to make a decision. They view it as their job to put you in the best position to win this case, Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, it's not a bad thing either. It's just you, but you have to know which outside counsel, litigate what which way and so and you you know you take their input you know given their worldview mm-hmm. well let's let's dive into how you partner with outside counsel because i think this is a good segue mm-hmm. so one of the things that i have observed uh from your ip litigation practice when you led that is you ran i think a very tight practice and i mean that in in like the best possible sense of the word and as much as i think you had a system for engagement and success that typically yielded great outcomes for Microsoft, Mm -hmm. but also created great value for our partners. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that, because you started describing some of the traits of outside counsel who Mm -hmm. really deliver more value. And I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about, let's just call it the systematic provocation of how you do that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I have to say, you know, the key to that, the success of that group was actually the people in that group, the, you know, the, the team members, you know, there was, you know, David Killos, Stacey Kwan, um, Mark Taylor, Rob Lytle, I mean, fantastic, fantastic lawyers, all with very deep judgment, all, um, you know, partners in law firms before they came here and fully capable of running a case. And, you know, I don't say that just, you know, because they're great lawyers, but I mean, I actually think that's critical to the whole thing because, they are fully capable of making decisions and making very, you know, know, good decisions. And um, they have excellent judgment. And they had a lot of experience before they came here um, running large matters. Um, So once you have that, then 
they are capable of making decisions. And I actually didn't have to make any decisions on any of their cases, really. Um, you know, everyone saw there was like a really big case. And, you know, we would talk to each other about, you know, we would bounce ideas off of each other, but everybody was really empowered to do that. And so that was really critical, right? Being able, having a team that was mature enough to make, you know, really difficult decisions on their own without my having to guess whether they did it right or wrong. I mean, I never really questioned their judgment. Um, again, there were some very hard decisions that we might talk over as a team, um, but that's more in the way of you know partners of law firms like bouncing ideas off of each other. Um, so, so once the, you know you know that they're really good at decision making, then you trust their ability to size up risk and take risk. And so, we would be able to, you know, basically say you know, form a plan for litigation depending on how much risk there was. So you wouldn't fight these cases that weren't worth very much with your bets outside counsel. Um, you know, you might let, again, very good counsel, but more junior counsel do that, right? Which they appreciate the opportunity um, and we save money and, and, and you know, it works out for everybody. And, and you know, these, these younger lawyers get training. Um, your biggest risk cases, obviously, you're not going to do that with. Um, but, I, you know, it, the key is having people who are comfortable taking risk, make those decisions and, and empowering them to do that without guessing again. And, you know, I want to make it clear, like, you know, all of us are going to make some mistakes, but I always want to make sure I had their back. Like, you know, if a mistake was made, you know, whatever, we'll, we'll get past that. And I, you know, to some degree expected that, you know what, if we get 90% of the decisions right and 10% wrong, I think it's pretty good. That's pretty good, right? And so, again, if, you know, if you're not getting, you know, more than 10% of the decisions wrong, which none of them ever did, right, um, then everything's good, even if you have a few, if you have a few things that, you know, you wish went better. So you had, but, it, but you had a, an explicit tiering approach wherein right. you basically size up a case and mm-hmm. say, from an exposure standpoint, from a precedent standpoint, what have you, there, there are indicia that I either need the, the A plus team or the A team. And, right. you know, because you, you don't hire the B team. But, right. you know, and, and so you would be very thoughtful and intentional about divvying up the work with the partners who had the skill sets and the capabilities to, to really get the outcome that you thought was necessary. Right. And then I think it was also key to explain to them, um, you know, I, I I find a lot of people don't communicate with their outside counsel in terms of, you know, what the end goal is very mm-hmm. well or sizing it up for them. Again, it's an order of magnitude thing. They'll do whatever you want. Like, they, you know, their job is to, you know, 100% job on everything until you tell them, no, I really only need you to do an 80% job on this. So you have to tell them that otherwise. And then they also have to trust you that if something goes wrong, you're not going to blame them. So there is a lot of trust in this, too, which is why, you know, we have limited number of outside counsel. You know, you can't train all these lawyers on the way you do things. And again, there's a personal relationship there in terms of, you know, what um, they're willing to do. And, you know, because they believe that they're, you know, you're not going to blame them if something goes wrong. Um, we also have a trust relationship with the outside counsel that, you know, if we do say something wrong, we staff some, you know, more junior people on it matter. If something goes haywire, they have backup. They have much more senior and experienced people to come in um, should we need them. And so there's there's definitely a partnership there that's built on, you know, many years of working together. And I've seen some of these, you know, associates grow up to be partners. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad, you know, and a lot of them tell me, you know, they're always appreciative to do our work because, you know, I let them argue their first motion or they let them take their first witness at trial which you know what I hear from them is a lot of other companies won't do that and Mm. you know for them you know if they can say you know Microsoft let me argue this you know that means a lot for their career 
Um, so so I, I then I feel like they ha, you know they are loyal to us as a client and they will go the extra mile for us and you know keep their eyes out for trends and things that we might not necessarily see sitting here you know up in Redmond like in our offices. So communication key for getting your outside counsel to do the things that you want them to do and perhaps not do the things that you don't want them. But what did you do to also make sure that the incentives were aligned so that they would be efficient? Um, So we, you know, one thing we noticed is that a lot of you know, in the early days of alternative fees, a lot of people had these sort of capped budgets. And, you know, that's great for the client in that, you know, you're not going to spend over a certain amount, but that doesn't doesn't give the law firm, you know, really, I mean, they have incentive to be efficient, I guess, to some degree, because um, they don't want to go over their budget and eat their time, but they don't necessarily have that much incentive to do things that more because they're getting paid by the hour. And so what we started doing was we started doing a lot more flat fees. They get a certain amount, you know, per phase of the case or per month, um, depending on how much work we thought was going to be done. And then if they get a better than expected result, right, they'd get a bonus. You know, it's very tricky to do that because you actually have to spend a fair amount of time at the very beginning sizing up the case, figuring out what, you know, a good resolution would be and what a bad resolution, you know, and expected and, you know, what's better than expected, expected and worse than expected. Um, and, And then everyone has to sort of believe that, yeah, we size this right. And it's also key that a lot of these counsel get, you know, a lot of you know, enough cases from us that, you know, if one goes kind of bad and they, you know, they eat some time on it, that they can, they might be able to make it up on another one. Um, and so, again, there's a trust issue there that, you know, you, you can't probably do this a lot with a firm that only has one case for you. You, you can really only do it if they've got enough cases to spread the risk. And, and that's true for us as well, right? You know, you, you want the... You want the counsel to be loyal to you. You want them to feel like they're getting a good deal and not a bad deal. Um, so, you know, another thing that we did that um, I think helps us is, you know, we, we try to eliminate a lot of the scout work that, that the outside counsel do. So, you know, take a thing like document production. Again, nobody loves to do it. We were probably one of the first that, you know, start reviewing, you know, every document. Again, not for every case, but in a lot of situations, like, we don't have to review every document. Like, we know it's in there. We can do keyword searching if we need to find something. We know from the engineers probably what's in the documents, that kind of thing. Again, you don't, and it's not a one-size-fits-all. You might do that with some of the documents and not other documents. But, again, just trying to eliminate the stuff that is boring and doesn't really add any value to the case. And I think a lot of the a lot of the junior associates, a lot of these firms sort of appreciate that, that, you know, we don't waste a bunch of their time doing stuff that nobody wants to do. But the, yeah, but the foundation of this that you keep going back to is really good communication, real partnership, where you're right. not trying to kind of get over on your your you know your your partner. You you really want your prosperity, you want their prosperity. But also, this is all underpinned by, I think, a rigorous understanding of the things that matter right. based on what actually impacts the outcome. Right. Exactly. And- what impacts the outcome and what doesn't. And that's that's key. And, you know, there are firms, you know, I'll say there are firms that are less busy that are less comfortable when I say, I don't think we need to do this. Like, you know, I, you know, I get that there's a little risk here. I'm willing to take that risk. I mean, there are some outside counsel that just don't want to do that. Um, and, you know, they're not bad lawyers. They're just more risk averse. And I get that. Um, but it, I think if you want to do work for Microsoft long term, you need to be a little flexible on that kind of thing. Um, so I think part of the reason that 
we were successful doing this in patent litigation. And I say patent litigation as opposed to trademark and copyright because I don't think they're quite there, even though we're the same client. Um, is that you know there's so much litigation that you know people, you know the partners and associates are happy to do not happy to do less work, but you know, they, they understood that you know, they couldn't really do everything on the cases. And so the cost of cases come down because they're actually spending less time on them because they're only working on the issues that are important. Again, this has been a, you know, just full admission. It's been a bigger struggle, I think, with some of the trademark and copyright cases because those lawyers are not, have not been as busy. And so getting them to accept like, oh, we can take a little risk on this is a little harder. That's very interesting, uh, and it gets to the general concept uh, that basically, on some level, tasks expand to fill the time allotted. And yes. One approach to potentially get people to optimize is to maybe give them slightly more than they can handle and then force them to triage. And I, I think you have to do that in a very gentle and intentional way, Right. but it causes people to, to ideally focus on the things that really matter, presuming they have the skill set to, to ruthlessly prioritize. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, you know, you might think you can manufacture that need for prioritization by setting the budget on a case low enough that they have to do it. But I'll tell you, that doesn't always work. I mean, what you find is that the people who just have discomfort with it, they just run over the budget, even though you tell them. I mean, you know, I've had conversations with some firms where I can see they're running up against the budget. I don't want them to eat their time. I tell them don't do this, and they're not comfortable with it. They they want to do it anyway, and then they want the budget to expand. And so again, I think if they personally are really really busy, they accept it because they don't really have a choice. But even if you set the budget low, but they're not personally that busy, they have a lot more discomfort with it because mm-hmm. they feel like they have a choice. So that's sort of a sad. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of a sad thing to say, but I think it's sort of true. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's very human, right? Like, yeah. I think I think we can empathize with that, and I I think I have I observe that among many of our counsel, many I think have benefited from their partnership with you because I think you brought them along, and I I'm sure they started off in a place where they were probably more apt to be able to do some of the prioritization you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I also suspect that you've helped bring them along by showing them if you actually dance to this tune, this will be better for you and you will get more work from us because mm-hmm. that shows me that you can listen and execute on the plan that I, I that has my priorities, not yours. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I also think, it, unfortunately, it's also true that a lot of other house counsel will pay a lot more money for case. I mean, just I happen to know, like you talk to counsel and I don't think they're just saying this because I, you know, for example, in settlement conferences we have with magistrate judges or, or other mediators, a lot of them ask about the costs the case, right? Um, and they use that obviously as leverage to try to get you know people to settle the case rather than spend the legal fees. And they've told me that you know they can see what all these companies pay right to litigate these cases, and then we pay a lot less. And they you know they're always sort of curious about that. Um, and you know, and it's the same law firms. I mean, you know, are you getting paid less? You know, getting paid more by other companies, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily realizing more profit. You know, those firms aren't necessarily realizing more profit just because they're collecting more revenue. So you do have to keep in mind, like, they have to realize enough money to want to be loyal to you or the, or the work has to be interesting enough that they're, you know, they're willing to do it even if it not they don't have as great a realization rate. But you have to think about, like, from their perspective, what motivates them. It's sort of, you know, could be, like, 
again, experience, you know, that's worth the money. It's worth some time to them. It's exposure in terms of, you know, this is a, we're a marquee client. Um, but, you know, you can only push that so far. And then they, but, but that bottom line, they have to make enough money. Uh, they don't have to make, you know, they don't have to make, we don't have to be their most profitable client, but we have to be profitable enough. Right. And what you're really describing there is a holistic understanding of the value of our partnership, which is, in many instances, it goes beyond direct economics. And as right. much as there can be a little bit of a halo that comes mm-hmm. uh, from doing work with us because that can help you develop business with others. But also there's a good chance that we're probing issues on the frontiers that are probably really instructive and valuable for your firm and for your other clients. Yeah. And it's incumbent upon us as a, a, a client and a customer to help our partners understand that that is part of the benefit and the value that comes from doing work with us. And yeah. sometimes you may not win uh, on a pure economics, a direct economics standpoint as you might with other clients, but when you look at the totality of what we have to offer, it can be really compelling. Yeah, it can be, but also recognize, you know, there are some there are some firms that just won't do our work. Like it just, I mean, they, you know, they fired us as clients. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily because like we're not offering them an but you know whatever they want to take cases against us and you know so there's a whole set of things like you're never not everybody is you know going to be a Microsoft lawyer right it's just you know you have to find the right fit and and that's okay you know we have to find the lawyers who want to do work with us the way we want to work it's just like we not everybody's going to be a Microsoft employee even if they're a great lawyer right <laughs> so true yeah. enough true enough yeah uh I'd like to transition to talk about what you're up to now. So you've taken a new role in the intellectual property group. Yeah. What What are you up to? Well, that's a good question. Sometimes I wonder myself. Um, sometimes, you know, I think whatever other people in my group wonder what I'm up to. It's, it's I want to say it's actually been a little difficult, not in a bad way, but, you know, it's not like the role was so defined when I came into it, um, but I think there was a sense that I could add value on some, you know, major issues and projects, and I like to think that I do. Um, and you know, a lot of these issues, they're not full-time work, right? You know, I, part of it is, you know, issues come up. They don't necessarily need a full-time person work on it, but you do need to kind of manage a lot of other people to do a lot of the groundwork, and then you need to, uh, you know, apply some, you know, broader thinking up at the very top. And and so. We also, you know, we've stepped up a little bit, you know, in terms of IP policy. We used to have a full-time person doing it. You know, now I do it, and it's certainly not, like, you know, full-time job. And so there were a bunch of things um, that, you know, fortunately, you know, I thought I could do in a fairly limited amount of time. Um, and then also helped, you know, train some other people to do that so I don't have to, you know, travel and as much um, and be out. And so I guess I don't know that if you talk to the other people in the group that they would agree with this, but I hope they think that I'm a resource and that I'm enabling them to do more of the work themselves, you know, higher level work by themselves by being sort of, you know, a backdrop for them. Um, it's, it's a little, I do wonder about it, you know, just personally, you know, I wonder how much, you know, people, you know, appreciate that because we are sort of a metric driven company and like what did you deliver and it's often hard for me to say what I delivered because what I really do I hope I'm doing is naming a lot of the people to you know have great impact um, and you know again provide them some comfort in their decision making and the way they do their work and enabling them to do to stretch beyond what their comfort zone is by knowing that you know I sort of sit in the background to help them out if something 
you know, goes wrong. So what you're describing is a really interesting model that historically has not, it's, it's true, it has not been valued here, but the new rewards model we have has three pieces, right? It is, what did you deliver mm-hmm. individually? What uh, did others do to, what did you build on that others produce? So mm-hmm. building on the work of others. But one of the, the third pillar is, what did you do to support the work of others? Mm-hmm. And I have no doubt that you are a fulcrum for these folks. And I, because every time I come and talk to you about something, I leave smarter, more capable, more informed. I have new ideas. You, you basically catalyze creativity. And so I have no doubt that there is real benefit. Now, I do also agree with you that our measurement systems for that are still not mature. And that um, it's and it could be in many instances our culture mm-hmm. is still trying to catch up with what the aspirational view of, of things are. So I'll be curious to see how this plays out. But it also is interesting because it's clear that you're using the same approach that has been consistent across what you've described, which is optimizing so that the work that you're doing has the most impact. Yeah, and that's just interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess I will say one thing. I mean, I you know it's a delicate role here because you know I don't. You know, just because I talk through an issue with somebody, you know, they're doing the work and I don't want to take away from that. And so, you know, I find myself in positions like, I, you know, I sort of have to say what impact I had. But in doing that, I, to some degree, feel like I'm, I don't want to take credit for other people's work. And so that's, you know, unfortunately, I think sort of corporate America, this is not a comment on Microsoft um, as much as it is, you know, a comment on the way things work is that, you know, if you don't, if you don't self-promote, I think there is a danger that your influence is assumed to be less than it is. Um, and, you know, I say that, you know, with, with some hesitation, because like I said, I don't, I don't want to take away, you know, from other people's accomplishments. And so I think that's, for me, a little bit of a challenge. And maybe, you know, maybe I'm not that concerned because whatever, I'm just working part-time and I'm, I like the work. And so, you know, I'm not doing it to get any glory. I just enjoy the work. So you're, you're taking me to a, uh, an interesting place because I think you're right that it is very much the case that success historically has required a lot of self-promotion within the realm, corporate generally. I'm not talking about mm-hmm. Microsoft. And that often doesn't feel authentic to a lot of people, especially folks who do not come from majority backgrounds. That's exactly right. And I'm curious, I'm just going to give you a very squishy question here, mm-hmm. but you know, as we think about having a more inclusive culture and as we think about really bringing diverse perspectives, because we know so much creativity and so much you know, long-term value comes from that, are there things that you think we need to do to foster an environment that actually feels welcoming and that has a better opportunity, has a, a higher likelihood of acknowledging the value of people who may not come from those majority backgrounds? Yeah. So one of the things I said when I this is this has changed since. But when I joined the company, there was a system where each employee gave themselves a numerical number. I think it was like 2.0, whatever. And you know, I I never like saw the statistics on this, but I would guess that you know in general, you know, women ranked themselves lower than men did, and all this kind of stuff. And I always 
I said, you know, they should just do away with that because that's just, it's just rewarding people who want to brag, right? You know, and that's not, and, you know, and there's a whole anchoring thing about it. Um, and, you know, studies have shown women have less confidence and certain, and, and certainly there are men who have less confidence too, and there are women who have more confidence, but it's just, it's just, why would we even do that, right? Um, and I, and I suspect that there are many things like that, that I don't, I don't, guess I feel like the culture isn't welcoming to me. I, I don't feel like it's not welcoming. I feel like, you know, we're, we're trying to be fair to all the employees, but there are just some measures that, you know, maybe we could do better at measuring people's impact in a real way rather than a very loose way. And, you know, I've been the beneficiary of people thinking well of me. Like, I, you know, I have no doubt the reason I was, you know, able to do, to transition working part-time and do this is because people had just a general good sense about me that, you know, maybe isn't backed up by data. I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But, you know, you, you I understand that there's this feeling that, oh, some people get certain privileges, right? And that's not a great feeling for anybody who's coming new into the organization, you know, whether, you know, no, no matter what their background is. Um, so I just, I think we need to work on, like, how do we really measure people's impact in a way that is really objective as opposed to very subjective, which unfortunately, I think that's the way the world works right now. Again, it's not a Microsoft problem. I mean, it's a general problem. Mm -hmm. Do you find any analogy to this challenge to the billable hour and how people are rewarded in law firms? Um, I feel that's less the issue here. I do feel like there is a, there's always a bias towards activity versus results and impact. Um, and, you know, so I'm working on a, I, we're just launching it, I'm working on a task force with Tom Robertson and Marty Shiley around recognition. And I think some people think of, there's two parts of recognition. One is recognition, like sort of public recognition, giving people a pat on the back and recognize people with awards. You know, that means less to me personally than, and, you know, I mean, it means a lot to some people, but to other people, what matters to them more is like how much they're paid. Like, or do they feel like they're being paid fairly? Um, and do they feel like they're being recognized for their work, you know, in a quiet way, right? And so that's what I would like to focus on is just, you know, having people feel, feel like the their impact is being measured correctly. And, you know, I go back to this analogy for blind auditions. Like, I, I, you know, grew up playing violin, which is maybe not a surprise to anybody, whatever. I'm like an Asian female. But... <laughs> You know, I, you know, you, you go through like lots of auditions, right? You know, <laughs> as a kid. And I remember there was one orchestra that did blind auditions, right? And so, and you get a feeling about yourself as a player by seeing how you get ranked in all these orchestras, right? And this one had a blind audition and I jumped like three levels in the orchestra, like on a blind audition. And I was, sh personally, I was shocked. And the only person who probably wasn't shocked was my mother, but not because she had an accurate view of anything, but just because I'm her daughter. And like, and I think, you know, even my teacher was shocked. Like, and it's not that they would all say that I wasn't a good player. I mean, I was a really good player, but you know, I was much younger than a lot of the other players. And they just thought, you know, whatever you work your way up. And so I think when you see, you know, a person that's small of stature, you know, ninth grade versus 12th grade, whatever, you make certain assumptions. And so then when you hear them play, you know, all that gets filtered through. But when you, when you can't see who's playing and you can't see, you know, how old the kid is, what gender they are, all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a very different thing that goes on. And if we could replicate that kind of thing here in terms of people's work, you know, I think that would make people feel good. Like, oh, it's completely MS. And you can see this, and, and it's and it's happened in all these orchestras, like throughout the country, all these professional orchestras, they become a lot more diverse because more of them are doing blind auditions. And so I think 
if you can look at that as an example and you can say that's something you could aspire to, I don't know, you know, again, music is one thing you can do it because there are blind auditions, but I don't know if we could figure out a way to do that for other types of work, that would be fantastic. I think that would be amazing and really would just get we get out of our own ways because it is so often so often the case that it feels like we have these somewhat arbitrary measures that fe- people think are fair. Right. Um, and I would say what they are is they are uh, sometimes at least written down as fair and people think they're applied consistent, but they end up basically yeah. limiting the application of our talent. Right. I mean, I think people try to, I mean, people try to apply them consistently and they are written in a way that seems, you know, non-biased or whatever, but I mean... You know, feeding them through. I mean, there's all these people who do all these linguistic analysis, say, you know, certain words, like, have certain biases. I'm sure that's true. And, I mean, if we could get maybe a better vocabulary around some of these things or, you know, for when we're going into our sort of, you know, calibration meetings or whatever we're calling them now, um, you know, just having some boundaries around, okay, let's recognize some of these things that seem a little biased and try to avoid this, or if we notice ourselves using certain words, like maybe we, that's a flag to us that we should rethink some of those things. Um, it, you know, it's a very difficult problem, but I think there are things we can do. Well, it's not going to be perfect, but I think there are things we can do around the edges to try to, again, sort of get people talking about certain things in a, in a more neutral way, um, you know, from a gender perspective or a cultural perspective uh, than, you know, other terms, for example. But And, and the, one of the things that I always come back to is like, did the person deliver better than expected results or expected results? Like, I don't care how much effort they put into it. They deliver better than expected results or expected results. And what I find is a lot of times people reward effort, not not results. And that is that is the thing that sort of makes us not efficient. So A for effort, but cash for results. Right. <laughs> but right now we're getting, we're, I think in general, I mean, and again, I'm not saying this about Microsoft, I'm saying yeah. this about corporate America. It's like, I think a lot of times we're rewarding effort, you know, not actual results. So I think that's fair. I think you've also articulated the business case for why having a more inclusive culture and why really giving everybody a chance to, to show up and show well and contribute is just critical for our future success. Yeah. Well, I, I've held you over. Yep, uh, wow. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Isabel. Thank you so much, Jason. Like, I, mean, I always feel smarter when I talk to you because you're so appreciative. <laughs> and plus, you use words I don't understand. Like, I, you know, half the time you say I was like, what does that mean exactly? Okay. Um, so. Well, wow. I, that, that, I, okay, I'm going to end there because that, that made my day. Thank you. All right, thanks.